From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the big event. Today is our eulogy for the Sony Metreon, the futuristic mall in San Francisco that was supposed to change the world of urban entertainment. This episode is part of a bigger Metreon history project in the Chronicle, which started after I found about 200 unpublished photos in the Chronicle archive. They were less than 20 years old, but they brought back the optimism of the Metreon project. Like everyone else, I was 100% convinced this was the future. You hear that sound? That's 1999. Here are a few words from a Sony Metreon marketing video that captures the optimism that most of us were feeling at the time. Today, consumers want to touch, feel, and experience the products they might consider buying in the future. In the city of San Francisco, visitors to Sony's Metreon get all that and a lot more. This is a place where experience and interaction is king. It's okay to touch, to play, to encounter. A trip to Metreon allows consumers to see the latest movie releases, watch an IMAX film, try out new technology products, It didn't work out for the Sony Metreon. After about a year and a half of stability, there was a spectacular fall. In just a few years, the majority of businesses closed or changed hands. Westfield took over from Sony, and most of the future has been stripped from the Metreon, which is anchored around a city target in 2019. But I'm bringing a couple of colleagues on who lived through the promise of the Metreon. Food editor Paolo Lucchese, who went to the OG Metreon as a teen, and urban design critic John King, who covered the opening in 1999. Also, please check out my article in the Chronicle live on www.sfchronicle.com. We've curated about 20 of the best photos from the opening, plus a lot more history. Also, if you're a regular listener, please go on iTunes and rate the podcast. Give it a review if you have time. I forgot to ask people to rate the podcast when the big event launched, and apparently that was really important. I want the number of ratings to reflect the popularity of the podcast. Really appreciate it if you go and do that. It only takes a couple of seconds. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Welcome to the big event, and welcome John King and Paolo Lucchese. John King, your your first time, very first time in the big event studio. Looking at a bust of Herb Kane, I am feeling humbled right now. Yeah, it, a lot of people kind of track on that. Um, it's weird. It's a little big, <laughs> how, how, about four times life size. The the head of Herb Kane, at least twice. At least twice. Uh, Paolo Lucchese, welcome back. What's up? Not too much. Here to talk Metreon. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm super excited about this one. I, I just teased. I didn't show a photo of the 1999 Sony Metreon in all its glory. I just showed a photo of negatives and like a couple of the little negatives sticking out of the packet. And I just got this flood of memories from readers. Readers want to talk about the glory that was the 1999 Metreon. I love talking about the Metreon so much. John, are you in? I'm certainly in to contribute. I won't say that I, I won't say that I've been thinking about the Metreon a whole lot the last twenty years. Yeah, but I did go to Target last week. <laughs> nice. Spoiler alert: City Target. That's a spoiler. That's true. Um, Paolo Lucchese, take me back to June sixteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Where were you? What were you doing? <sighs> that was when 
I think that was the summer before my senior year of high school, if I'm doing the math correctly. Um, so I was in San Francisco um, doing high school things. I um, It was funny, but in anticipation of this uh, podcast, I asked some of my um, idiot high school friends who I love and I'm still friends with, um, kind of what they remembered of the Metreon and just not too dissimilar from what I remember. I think everyone went, went there like, one time that first year yeah. for, and then never went back unless it was maybe for like a movie. Um, those early years. Nice. John, June 16th, 1999. We actually have documented proof of where you were. You were, <laughs> you were at the Metreon covering this. It's actually fascinating. I was, uh, at the time I was our Contra Costa columnist. This is going way back in the annals of journalism before things like podcast existed. But I was kind of dabbling on the side doing architecture, urban design type pieces. And I was kind of fingered by the pink section to do something on the Metreon because you kind of like architecture stuff. So I did one of our big setups. There was a whole batch of stories because this was the coming thing. And what I learned at the time, though I didn't get it at the time, it's more one of the first lessons I learned in the whole kind of gig of the last 15 or 20 years if you write about a big new thing and it doesn't make sense and you don't understand it that's probably because it's not a good idea <laughs> at the time you think well i'm just not cool enough i'm too old i'm too this i'm too that these guys are smart visionaries who are paid a lot more than i am boom this must be something and then in retrospect it's like well no if a retail complex makes no sense. Why would Paulo and his friends go there more than once? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna explore that thought further. That's gonna be a central, um, central, central thought that we're gonna, um, central thought that we're gonna explore. Um, but I want to rewind a little bit. You were not the urban design critic because I read a piece that you wrote about the mm -hmm. Metreon that very much reads like prime grade A 2019 John <laughs> King urban criticism. Were you kind of trying out for the job a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I was I was a columnist three days a week in our Contra Costa edition, RIP. And every two or three months I was doing an architecture piece for the date book section just to just to show them we need to have architecture criticism back in the paper. This is after Alan Timko had gone on. You know, it, we need to be having stuff like this. So I was kind of getting my chops as a columnist, but then playing with this other thing. So it was like the Metreon. This piece was a hybrid, part news, part criticism, a little of this, a little of that. It was the future <laughs> of urban design criticism in the Bay Area. 1999... I was moving back to the Bay Area after about 10 years away, including four years in Los Angeles. And I moved back almost to the, I'm sure it was to the month when the Metreon opened. One of my first Bay Area memories was I, I lived with my aunt um, and she came back as I was probably moving in and she had just been to some special Metreon preview. She was the city treasurer at the time. And um, I'm sitting there and she gave me a hat and was just talking about it like this is you got to check this out you are not going to believe what you see and i wore the hat to work it was my first reprimand it wasn't at the chronicle it was the examiner at the time i was told to take off the hat 
because I just random hat I put it on mm-hmm. you know I wear hats and somebody there I think on the business side or maybe the managing editor was like getting sick of hearing about the Metreon for the last few years and they're like <laughs> take that thing off so I took off my hat I don't think it's on my record I haven't checked but um yeah Metreon um John, I wanted to kind of start with you a little bit, your early memories of this. And I know you maybe weren't covering it day to day, but this was something that was a long time coming. And certainly um, that area of the city, there had been a lot of changes going on for for decades. It was a former Skid Row. Yeah. Believe me, I could go into a long history on it. But just in a nutshell, there was a redevelopment district there going back into the mid-60s construction. The whole area was cleared and demolished in the late 60s, early 70s. It sat fallow for a decade or more. The first piece of the Moscone Center got built. Yerba Buena Gardens, which was kind of the good thing for the community promised almost from the start, finally opened like around 94, 95. And it was this great green bowl in the middle of nothing. And people loved going there. It predated SF MoMA and everything. You know, I would love going there. Pasquale's, another RIP, a great little local coffee chain had a place in there. And there's always this big hole sitting there. And it's like, what's this going to be? And the ideas kept changing. It was always going to be this kind of bring in the common people generator. But no one really knew what it was. The developer kept flipping plans around. And then it gets into the whole kind of mid-late 90s hubris. It predates the dot-com boom, but that whole kind of notion of, hey, we're California. We're creating a brand new world. We're creating a new society. We're creating a new culture. We're doing things differently. And Sony has a brand. Why can't my brand go into 18 different lifestyle sectors, so on and so forth? You had actually the one little shop I was sad when it left was hear music which was this crazy novelty where you could go in and pick out a cd and listen to a song on it yeah you know which was crazy you couldn't you had access to any music you wanted here you know so it's everything was being geared toward an old world just as in fact technology was about to render that old world obsolete what about what about from a food perspective paolo where's Where's um, San Francisco at this point? Because uh, the Metreon was forward thinking with food. It wasn't your traditional food court. It was a it was a food court bistro, and 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 to this day, it it kind of is this constantly changing, evolving thing that seems to evolve with the city. Yeah, I think looking back, um, the thing that strikes me so much about it is that is just the the original sin from a food perspective wasn't the ideas that they had and who would fill it, um, but really like where they built the restaurants. They're all inward facing, um, originally at least. And only in recent years have they kind of opened uh, restaurants that were outward facing on the street level. So instead of like this box that's like sealed off from the city, and that's so, looking back now, we never, we don't see that very much right now, I don't think. It's like street, street level and ground floor retail are so, key to john probably knows more about this than i do but key to like activating public spaces um yes and also but it gets into the whole hubris of the era i mean sony didn't want to tap into the surrounding city sony wanted to suck you into its own little replicable entertainment pod where you would go in and you would stagger eight 
out eight hours later having eaten two meals, watched a movie, done some virtual bowling, gone to Marie Sendak's thing, which is why Peter <laughs> should give a quick fill-in to all the puzzled people listening, wondering what the heck we're talking well, about. Well, first of all, Sony was the master tenant. We should mention that. Sony got to, they were the mall owner. It wasn't the Westfield Metreon. It was the Sony Metreon. It had Sony PlayStation Store. It had the only Microsoft Store, I think, in existence at the time with the retail products. And then um, had all these um, ideas that uh, I think they wanted to be kind of like an indoor amusement park. They were combining artists with what at the time was high tech. Uh, you mentioned hyperboling. That was my favorite thing to do there. And as it became an abandoned, <laughs> kind of post-apocalyptic looking place to walk through, hyperboling still had lines. Um, there were things that worked. But uh, hyperboling was in the airtight garage, which um, the designs of the airtight garage were by Mobius, this French uh, 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 graphic novelist. And they had this hyperboling. Let's describe hyperboling. It, it's the ball is fixed, kind of like the trackball and missile command, and you roll the ball from a fixed point and have a big screen in front of you as the ball goes down like you Lombard know, Street, Lombard Street, yes. and and hits some pins. Or I think there was a pirate ship that would rock back and forth. It's actually fun. I went to hyper bowling more than once. So. <laughs> um, and then they where had, the wild things are. Yeah, that was on the fourth floor. Maurice Sendak. We have photos of Maurice Sendak. Um, the author of Where the Wild Things Are up there, maybe the only time he went there, but I mean, there was some kind of endorsement and they had artists come and build this big play factory for kids based on Where the Wild Things Are with, you know, little interactive whack-a-mole type things and 17 foot high wild things. And, uh, uh, and yeah, I mean, it, that, that only lasted a few years, but it was one of the big name things coming in. Hard to believe it didn't work. <laughs> and I thought there was like, uh, I recall even at the time, yes, there was an elevator, you know, that went up to the, the theater, which is the thing that has always worked the best there. But the theater was not, um, especially in the later years, had no connection to Sony. Um, and I remember the whole thing getting from one place to the other was like an MC Escher print. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's a system of like elevators <laughs> and walkways and, you know, catwalks and things like that. I, to this day, have never been to the fourth floor and I could not tell you how to get there. I mean, maybe the elevator goes there, but I, I, I assume there's back passageways and stuff if you want to get to the fourth floor. Um, yeah, it, it seemed like a weird design. What did you think at the time, John? Um, and I, I read your, your review. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I... Pop culture cruise ship was your, was in your lead. That's a good I like line. that, yeah. No, it was funny. It was, at the time, I had a few different reactions. One, pure architecture was, wow, this is a lot more modernistic looking than most stuff getting built in San Francisco, which... You know, it was. Now it looks kind of cliched. But at the time, it it wasn't great design. It was unusual to see a big, you know, aggressively modern box of metal and glass. So that was one thing I thought. Another thing I thought was, again, the whole kind of like, so it's kind of a shopping mall, but it's not really a shopping mall. It's kind of a movie theater, but there's other stuff to do. But everything has a brand but it's supposed to be like kind of a real cool place to be. And once you're in there, you're not really supposed to leave, which is what Paula was talking about. And, you know, 
you know, I was younger than I am now, but I was old enough that it was like, but maybe I just don't get it. Maybe this is what the kids are doing, which I think is what a lot of well-paid people, you know, Sony is trying to come up with. Yeah, so it was just, but that's also a problem. It's like this kind of conflicting set of things, yeah. which is much different than, say, I remember walking into the Ferry Building the first time, and it's like, kaboom, history, kaboom, cool little places to go, kaboom, some real indulgent places if you have the money and the desire. I mean, that's pretty clean. It's yeah. like, it's San Francisco, and it's tasty, and there's alcohol. I yeah. mean, and Metreon, 20 years later, we're trying to figure out what it was. Paolo... Your memories, you went there, you didn't go there more than once as a teen. I'm and sure I went there more than once, but yeah. I don't, none, I think it was just for the movies, really, after that first time. I mean, what do you, how many times do you need to go to a PlayStation store or, um, you know, as a teenager, you're not really interested in where the wild things are, <laughs> um, you know, so it's not really, I mean, the arcade probably had some draws for teenagers, but even that was kind of in kind of no man's land, maybe a little bit. Um and also, you know, I mean, one thing we haven't really spoken about is its location in the city is kind of mm-hmm. um, odd if you're, it's tech kind of in the middle, but not really in the middle. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the whole Yerba Buena Gardens was a real symbol of the city, kind of the cultural center, center of gravity moving south. But at the time, I mean, in a way even now, but at, certainly at the time, if you went there, there's that. There's SF MoMA, which is a whole different type of thing. And it was still mostly like kind of a traveler zone. It was the Moscone. Mm-hmm. It was a few big hotels. You know, you're across the street from the Jukebox Marriott. Jukebox Marriott. Across the other way is the city's biggest parking garage. Yeah. You know, if, if you're cool enough as a teenager to want to be in downtown San Francisco or in the northeast corner of the city you probably don't want to be standing next to the Starbucks at the parking garage looking at a big metal box. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I worked a block away. I was working at the Examiner and Chronicle. I was, I'm sure, squarely in their demographic because I'm 28, 29 years old, suddenly have some disposable income. You know, Aunt Susie's paying the rent. So I can, I had six months with her before I paid for an expensive apartment and became cheap again. And I do remember like the first year... It was almost like that time you're dating someone, that person you date who the first six months is just, oh my God, you're so in love and it's just burns really bright and then it quickly flames out. <laughs> I remember the first year of the Metreon, like the M&M bar was, God rest the M&M bar. I mean, we'd all bring it back if we could, I think. It's the Chieftain now. It's sort of this Disney-fied Irish bar. But it was the newsroom bar that like Herb Kane went to. And I remember... Um, there were still people going there who were maybe the older demographic and a bunch of us at the Chronicle got hired right in our 20s at the Chronicle and Examiner and we all went to Jillian's and Jillian's Mm -hmm. had some deal with their pool room where either because we were with the Chronicle or just whatever that they if someone was having a party or something you could go there and they'd give you a couple hors d'oeuvres if you were buying a bunch of drinks and we go to Jillian's and that was our hangout and and, and it was partly because it was the Metreon it was like this is the Metreon <laughs> um I remember uh hyper bowling I remember there was on 
I don't know what was on what floor because, you know, there weren't a lot of windows. But um, I remember there was, I think, the third floor, maybe the fourth floor. There was a little bit more of an upscale bar where we'd go if there was something more important going oh, wow, on. Wow, I totally forgot about that. I had a, and, and the upscale bar was totally designed differently. Um, I had a good year at the, at the Metreon before kind of the facade came down and I started seeing it for what it was. It almost reminded me of, and in, in, I don't know if you guys are Star Trek people and I apologize, but the Metreon felt like like a good session on the holodeck for about a year before you realized <laughs> it was sort of all an illusion. And um, uh, So sad. Yeah. I, I want to talk about that illusion because we were all here for the <laughs> it's getting dark for the fall of the metreon it's going to get darker paolo the fall of the metreon when did you first kind of notice that this thing wasn't working i mean physical signs that it wasn't working i mean my answer is probably uh shorter than john's um <laughs> but mine is when i just stopped thinking about it <laughs> i hate to break your heart there peter i think mine i'm working in contra costa i come in i do the piece I stopped by a few times the first year just out of pure curiosity. And then I came back to San Francisco in 2001 to work out of the main office when I became the urban design critic. And I can remember going to lunch there a few times just to grab like a quick lunch. It's actually the little food court they had was a pretty good little food court. I think we should do a little sidebar on the food yeah. court at some point. Yeah, yeah but firewood. So, Let's go ahead and yeah, finish but your so thought. just coming back and it'd be like I'd go in and think, boy, there aren't many people here, and then I would, out of curiosity, go up to the second floor, or third floor, and just it was pretty empty. Yeah, but the food court was pretty good. I mean, this is the only food court I think in mall history where the press release lists the chefs that are involved at each place. It was firewood. To start a uh, long life. Yeah. I'm sorry. On Andale, the Mexican place that I yes. think has gone out of business or is only around at the airports mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Yes. Long Life Noodle Company, Buckhorn, oh, and that. San Raku. Yeah. And then there was the upscale one upstairs called yeah. Montage. Um, and I was looking at the, the reviews for that. And the signature with dessert um, was a uh, chocolate popcorn bag, which was a chocolate sack filled of chocolate filled with chocolate cake chocolate mousse and chocolate malt ice cream (laughs) and then it was swirled in chocolate sauce with popcorn so i would like to have someone recreate that you know what right now someone in a food truck just listen to you (laughs) and is thinking perfect this is the binge item we'll have I'm kind of hearing that and thinking, why would, anybody, bacon. why would anybody? Why did people wrap it in bacon? Why would anybody leave the Metreon? I mean, you kind of got all you need there. Yeah, That's what they wanted you to do. They didn't want you to. I mean, it. I mean, to go totally big culture. It was this kind of. The shopping mall worked great for developers for a few decades. By the late '90s, shopping malls were kind of showing their age. Their, it's like how do we punch up shopping malls but keep shopping malls going? And then it's like, well, gee, there's all these new things going on. We'll pull in branding in. You know, it's just such a weird thing, but they didn't want you to leave. Yeah, it it was almost modeled. There weren't, now that I think about it, there weren't many entrances and exits. Maybe they just wanted us all to be like Tom Hanks in the terminal and, (laughs) you know, get stuck in there for four months. Pretty much. Yeah. 
Um, do you think the Metron would have worked on Pier 39? No, I don't think so. Pier 39 gets a bad rap from folks. I mean, part of the thing with Pier 39 is you're always outdoors. Yeah. That's what people like. You know, we can mock the tourists, but the fact is, if you go to Pier 39, it's lots of little shops, and you're always outside, and you can choose all your different paths. Metreon, you were stuck inside. All you could do was wonder where the heck you were, and there weren't sea lions. So... (laughs) A different kind of thing. Sony Metreon in 1999, worst place to be in San Francisco during an earthquake, John? <laughs> <laughs> Got that big glass wall in the back. I don't know. No, that would have been... Not a lot of in exit the points. In earthquake, I was actually in the, the ground floor of Nordstrom yeah. by a big glass wall. And all these new buildings are pretty safe. Except the virtual bowling balls would have come rolling at you. So maybe that would have been dangerous in the, in the earthquake. <laughs> Dawn of the Dead remake, I think, would have been good in the Sony Metreon. Uh, <laughs> so the years pass, and uh, I recall uh, the Walk of Game I went and covered. They decided in, in one of their many, many, I, I, I kind of, in my mind's eye, suddenly the Sony Metreon people became like a kid swinging wildly at a pinata and just not being able to hit it. I remember the Walk of Game where they were going to try and do the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but with video game characters which are fictional so like the hollywood walk of fame you know you induct paul williams or or um you know uh ricardo montalban and you're on your in your walk of fame he's gonna show up and maybe he's gonna put his hands in the concrete i remember i went and covered it and it was like someone in a um sonic the hedgehog costume and someone dressed up like Laura Croft, oh the sexualized gosh. video game character from Tomb Raider. So that didn't work. That was on the second floor, which is now the target. Another spoiler. Um, I remember the, the real turnaround for me, and I wonder if you remember this, Paolo, because it was a little bit later, was I showed up one day, and the high-tech area that I think used to be the Discovery Store or one of those places, all of a sudden I walk in, and it's this random, hastily thrown-together food court with like no rules to it and i'm like what is going on here yeah i i vaguely do remember that that was kind of like when it was they're really throwing just everything out a wall and there's it was kind of the you could see the wheels turning behind the scenes like wait a minute we want to get more san francisco people in here what if we do a farmer's market (laughs) and it's people san francisco people like tomatoes right Did you eat at the farmer's market, uh, I did not. What I did around that time was I did a column recommending that essentially what they should do is build a big, you know, they have this outdoor deck that the poor architects, the architects tried to design kind of a building that connected to its surroundings. Mm-hmm. And Sony and the the operators just ignored everything. And so there was like a big outdoor deck on the second floor. And I said, you know what you ought to do is you ought to blow a hole open on 4th Street so people can walk in and out easily. And you ought to just create a big beer hall. Let the beer hall spill out into Yerba Buena Gardens, really like kind of a fun festive area. Um, but I did not go to the farmer's market because I might have been too old to think maybe the kids got it, but I was still young enough to know that, well, if I'm going to go to a farmer's market, I'm not going to go to the Metri. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. Uh, the empanadas were very good at the at the short-lived Metreon Farmers Market. Um, yeah, I, I I looked in in our our coverage and um, 
the the thing that blew my mind is through all of this sony is just completely declaring victory they're like we wanted five million people to come through we had six million but it starts the seam starts showing david lazarus our old business columnist wrote a couple of just cutting through the bs columns um one of which he's getting a lot of sources and talking about how um, the discovery store is sending people home and then closing early because no one's in the store they fired their customer relations staff and my favorite is every year they're saying well we've got these great numbers our numbers are exceeding and and david lazarus pointed out that they they counted the people who were walking through mm-hmm. the metreon just to get to yerba buena gardens or mission <laughs> street so like using it as a throughway was a visit to the Metreon. Um, not working out, uh, Westfield buys the Sony Metreon, I believe in 2006. That sounds about right. And then that's basically the end. I mean, it's a slow change to um, look like any other mall. The food court now, Paolo, it, it's almost a mirror of, of what's at the Westfield. Yeah, but I think it's, there's some kind of sneaky good finds. Like, I like the Filipino place. Um, there's a Japanese soft serve place. It's... You know, it's not bad. Yeah. And there's some survivors. It's a nicely designed space. Yeah. I it, mean, it, 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 yeah. It, it's a good place just to be. Yeah. And a fun fact is the two surviving restaurants that from the original ones. Yeah, the two surviving, only two surviving two. businesses. Sanraku. And? Jillian's? No, Jillian's, RIP. Buckhorn. Buckhorn in the far corner. It is in the worst location in the Metreon. Um, we should like the city should give them the key to the city for surviving <laughs> in that that isolated corner that even with a redesign, it's it's got to be the worst location. It's tough. But um, because of hashtag journalism, I went there today and <laughs> it was packed and and it's it's kind of sneaky good, too. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, if you want a steak salad, I don't know how many people want steak salads these days. But, you know, if you want some sliced tri-tip on some salad, not bad. I would there just, we go. Next year's top 100. <laughs> Nudging out Tommy's joint. For the <laughs> Tri-tip will survive. Um, Sanraku, I understand. Am I pronouncing that right? Hopefully. Um, because it was always kind of the only, I think it was the only restaurant that faced the outside. Yeah, see, it was the one building. Uh-huh. It, it was the one piece for some reason they let have an opening to the outside. And also it was always separate from kind of the terminal disease inside. Yeah. Um, City Target comes along. I think that's like the huge turning point. Mm-hmm. John, disagree or agree? No, I agree. I mean, it, it. You know, Westfield buys in or buys it. However, all that worked out, and then it's, what are we going to do with this thing? Well, for all the changes and all the uncertainty in the world, the fact is there are a lot of people in downtown San Francisco, and a lot of them need to grab something on the way home or grab something for lunch. And that's why Trader Joe's does so well here, which is only a few years old, and why Target does so well, is that you want a place in the city that works, that you can just go get something and you don't have to worry about, well, is it cool, is it stylish, is it this, is it that? It's just, I need to go to Target. I'm going on a flight tomorrow and I need to get a small can of shaving cream. You know, and the, the redesign is a lot better than the old building was. I mean, they did open up 4th Street a little bit. They open up to the outside world with a lot of spaces, like the um, lemonade or whatever. Lemonade the, opens up the to the Southern California thing. 
I don't remember what, if anything, was in that space, but it makes a lot of sense. Have a space you can see from the park, you can see from 4th Street, you can enter from either. It just makes a lot of sense, you know, and they... Also, I don't think that they had the theater admission was not so obvious in the first one. I mean, the tickets and everything. It was beautiful. It was yellow neon. We have photos of it. I'm going to show a lot of these photos mm-hmm. in, a, in a column later this week. And it had these like metal um, little little tendrils coming out of this yellow neon. And I mean, it, in the selfie generation, it would have been great because the lighting's fantastic. Now they have a real practical. That's the difference. Just, yeah. just like you know, any other uh, AMC ticket line. Well, you just reminded me, the only thing that really stood out for me as unusual in the design of the original building was the basic paneling they had for some of the walls in the circulation areas was they had kind of like a plywood type of thing, but they had ground up like computer chips and things into it. So it was like the detritus of old computers was blint because they wanted to show how Mm. techy they were. And that was an unusual small touch, but, you know, it, it's... And then the fourth floor, Paula was talking about the strange afterlife of the fourth floor. Yeah. Remember when it was supposed to be Tavern on the Green for a hot minute? Yeah. yeah. So what happened with that? Um, I was just looking it up. So around 2008, New York's fame, one of their most famous restaurants was announced they were going to open a San Francisco location on that fourth floor. Um, And it was going to be Tavern on the Green. And it was going to be this 40,000 foot square foot restaurant, which is giant. It's, I think the, the Chronicle article at the time said basically, it's basically four times the size of Epic Roast House on the Embarcadero. Um, So, but yeah, then between, it never materialized. Tavern on the Green went through a lot of problems in New York that kind of cut off their money. Um, So they were dealing with stuff over there, but I'm sure it was a blessing in disguise that they never got this off the ground um why do you say that i i I don't i don't think any of us have actually been to the fourth floor (laughs) (laughs) but that's part of the thing is how the building also reflects the weirdness of today's san francisco there's nothing on the fourth floor basically it is all space to be used for events you know you look at almost any new venue or facility or anything that opens up in san francisco now and there's always the line, and it can be rented for events. You know, mm-hmm. the port, the the new cruise ship terminal, and it's available for events. <laughs> so Westfield, in a stroke of genius, was like, we're not going to put anything in it because now it's 2012 or 13. It's clear the city's entered, you know, this strange boom that won't stop. And you got the big convention center there. Mm-hmm. You've got all these companies moving in. I have no idea how much it's used, but, you know, if they were really desperate, they'd give, you know, they'd bring in, they'd say to Target, do you want to have another floor? Yeah, I don't think there's any way a restaurant could work there. Um, Even like something very populous, like a beer garden would have a hard time. It's just really traditionally in San Francisco, especially, it's really hard to do business when you're not on street level. I mean, it's a miracle that Fifth Floor survived as long as it could just down the block. And that was mm-hmm. a four-star restaurant. Um, and now it's Dirty Habits, a hotel, bar, and restaurant. So it's just, yeah, fourth floor of the Metron, 40,000 square feet, which is 10 times the biggest restaurants that open today anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just massive. I, I look at the food there, and I also think there's this weird... It, it started out, the food at the Metreon, it felt like 
they wanted me to go there as a destination, even for the food. Now I feel like a lot of the first floor stuff, and you mentioned your soft serve. It feels like they've got just these little cubby holes and even in some cases like robotic stations for me to pick something up on the way to my movie. Yeah, it is it is kind of funny to see the little, they're holding on to like, this is the future, guys. They got like the, <laughs> the, the coffee robot that's really just an arm that gives you a cup of coffee. <laughs> they have a ramen robot that's really just a machine that pours water on ramen. Yeah. Um, so they have like, and they got a Bitcoin machine, which is the saddest Bitcoin machine I in San Francisco. I did see the Bitcoin machine um, and thought, wow, that's so 2014. Yeah. But there are a lot of really like the endearing food businesses. Like uh, the soft, Japanese soft serve shop is very cute. It's like, you know, it's a Japanese soft. They have matcha and black sesame and it's pretty good. It's soft serve. It's how can you mess up soft serve? The Filipino place is great. They, they get a lot of regulars, it seems yeah. like. Uh, Bullcorn gets regulars. And and there's the bubble tea place, which is that has a line out the around their little little uh, velvet rope thingies all day. Well, and then all the places they put along four streets. So, yeah. So you know, it, I mean, Metreon is much more a real part of the city now, where there's that you can go inside it, but you can also just walk down Fourth Street and go to the noodle place. You know, the fresh roll place. That's yeah. a pretty good quick stop. I saw one of our yeah. co-workers ran over there for dinner last night. Yeah. There's the Chronicle Bookstore, which is still waiting to actually sell its first thing, but it's a good <laughs> advertisement for Chronicle Books. Any day now, though. Yeah. Super Duper Burgers, that certainly, you know, it's yeah. it's kind of, well, wait a second. We've got a cabillion people walking to and from the Moscone Center. Why not give them a place to grab a bite when they're on the way back? Absolutely. Yeah. So Metreon now making a lot more sense. Um, how much of the Sony 1999 Metreon, do you think it was a problem of design? And how much do you think we can blame things like the economy? Um, things like Sony, uh, their original creative director in, in one of David Lazarus's exposés <laughs> said that they didn't put the money into it, that, that the original design might have worked if they had followed up on it. Um, do you think some of it's timing too, or, or was it just a bad idea? I think they they seem to put a lot of money into it. As isn't it like eighty five million dollars? Is <laughs> yeah. that not enough? Um, but it wasn't enough. My <laughs> idea would have worked. <laughs> it just seems just so outdated. I mean, the idea. It just seems like how we look back on CD ROMs. It just yeah. And like I think John pointed this out, where it seemed like the future at a time when the future was about to change right away, when this new digital boom just happened and made all these things very quickly irrelevant. It was also an interesting to go whole big culture. It was also an interesting example of something you see in American cities on and on and on, which is the, we're going to do something big and it's going to really work. <laughs> and the beauty of a, San, of a city like San Francisco has been this kind of natural churning up of ideas. So it's more kind of the fine grain. And that tension is always going on in the city, and it's going on profoundly now with the changes of the last few years. But there's still something in the cultural body of San Francisco 
that wants to reject these foreign implantations. And something like Sony Metrion is, hey, you rubes in San Francisco, (laughs) we've got something for you. And it's like, I live in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) What do I care what you think? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, even just like the way looking at these press materials that came in, it's like Sony has changed the way people have fun. You will have fun. And it's like you can't, it's, as San Francisco especially is you can't force culture like mm-hmm. it, like we love that whole grassroots thing about our culture um, so just like to have this spaceship land and tell us how to have fun in their almost in their exact words yeah I mean this press release reads like they're trying to recruit you to a cult I mean it, it's <laughs> it really does uh, I'm gonna be a little bit of a contrarian and say a few tweaks if they had had the wild things serving you robotic coffee that might have worked but uh, you're probably right. Um, I will close this off with uh, a little bit of, um, if you could trade all of your tomorrows for one single yesterday. Is there anything, if you could go back right now and experience at the 1999 Metreon, anything you miss, if you could go back and do one thing, what would it be? Paolo, go. Chocolate sack. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the lost no. meal. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, I no in realistically I mean I I would <laughs> I, I I never got to go hyper bowling I feel like the game part of it was really underutilized the arcade uh you know I don't know now it seems like all of our arcades are clustered in bars and they're all vintage retro to have like something a little more uh natural seems like it could be cool yeah the the airtight garage actually the two games that no one played played a lot like Fortnite. I mean, it was getting a group of people on different terminals and fighting and cooperating with each other. And they were bad games, so they might not have worked anyway. I remember I played them, but uh, maybe it was just before it's time. John, go back. Just... <laughs> he had time to think, too. I had time, I had time to think and scratched out every single idea. I can't think of anything (laughs) no regrets all i want to say is i want to reminisce that what i would like to go back and find is what was promised me there are new things to discover for everyone in the bay area and beyond locals kids techies out-of-town visitors every age every background that's what i want i want to be the metreon i want the metreon to be what the metreon promised us Jeez, mm. oh, I think that's a good way to close. The Metreon was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> the Metreon was a. F- Thank you both for coming in. I, I uh, laughed a lot more than I thought I was about a twenty-year-old dead mall. Um, thank you, Paolo, and thank you, John, and uh, R.I.P. Metreon. <laughs> You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my colleagues, John King and Paolo Lucchese. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.